The presenting sponsor for this season of Wild Ideas Worth Living is Ford. Their 2021 Ford Bronco Sport is the SUV that'll get you to your outdoor adventures. It's an off-road SUV built for the thrill seeker, the sightseer, and the day tripper. This SUV has many available features to help you get to your destination. With enough ground clearance, off-roading capabilities, and purposeful design that includes easy to clean surfaces and plenty of interior space, this SUV is your gateway to the outdoors. The Ford Bronco Sport is equipped to help you get out there, to the mountain ranges, the woodland trails, and to the coast. You can learn more about what the Bronco Sport has to offer at Ford.com or in our show notes. A couple years ago, I was in Alaska and I dropped in on two of the best lines of my ski career, I would say. And in that moment, my mind and body were aligned and I had full confidence in what I was doing. And I honestly didn't have a strong sense of fear. I was totally present and I was totally aware of my surroundings. And once I was up there, I was like, it's go time. Professional skier Michelle Parker is one of the industry's most versatile athletes. She's appeared in over a dozen ski films, and in 2013, she won Best Female Performance at the Powder Video Awards and at the International Free Ski Film Festival. Michelle's a free skier, which is basically backcountry skiing, descending incredibly steep lines, and doing wild tricks. If you haven't seen a backcountry ski film before, they're adrenaline-packed movies that capture the stomach-dropping descents and tricks of pro skiers. When you watch Michelle on film, it's hard not to hold your breath as she launches from cliffs and glides down nearly vertical slopes. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living. If you've ever seen a free skiing film, you'll notice there's not a lot of women featured. It's just one more reason that Michelle stands out. As one of the most exceptional female free skiers, Michelle's always been motivated by women in sports. In fact, it was her mom who put her on skis at a very young age. Now Michelle finds herself as a role model for the next generation of female skiers. But before she was an in-demand athlete, she was a kid who started skiing pretty much as soon as she could walk. I was watching your Originate series last night and I was so inspired. And I heard your mom say, if you walk, you ski. And so she started you on skis at 18 months, which is unbelievable. Talk to me about this. Like you started skiing before you even knew it. Yeah, there was this thing amongst my mom and her friends where they would get their kids out and ski before they turned two. So that was just a thing. And obviously I don't remember it, but um, I feel pretty fortunate that I was basically born with skis on my feet in a really beautiful mountain town with the the culture behind it was, you know, for me and a lot of my friends, we were raised by the mountains and that was a pretty special and amazing way to grow up. So tell me about that. Like, what's it like to grow up? I know you don't know any other way, but for those of us who haven't grown up in ski towns or ski families, what's that like? Did you guys just go skiing after school, at lunch, after breakfast? Like, how does that work? Yeah, totally. So my family um, migrated to California after my father was a professional tennis player and they traveled all over the world competing in tennis. And then he became a coach. And then my mom just had this like really strong pull to Lake Tahoe. And she knew that that's where she wanted to grow up. And she loved skiing. She came there to, for her first time, I think when she was like 16 or something like this, um, more permanently. And so that was her goal. And after 
actually what I think was the the string that was pulled that allowed them to go out there was we lost my older brother. And I think it was just this huge, like, we need to start new as a family. And they moved to Tahoe um, the year before I was born. And my dad, you know, he still coached tennis, but he became a realtor. And my mom knew that she wanted to be a dental hygienist, which is like so random, but she picked up a job there and then they just started skiing. And my mom is an incredibly passionate outdoor woman who also is like addicted to skiing, maybe even more so than myself sometimes, which is beautiful. Um, She skis every single day. And I think at the end of the year, it's like 130 days, which she skis, which is uh, a huge inspiration in my life for sure. That's awesome. Your parents sound so cool. So did you go to one of those schools? I lived in Breckenridge for a year where you could ski like at lunch or after school or were you on a ski team? Yeah, I was uh, from the age of three. I joined the Mighty Might program at Squaw, which is just like basically and and this was just like happenstance that my school allowed us to take P.E. independently. So from 12 o'clock on every single day for basically my entire life. The school bus would take us from our school straight to the mountain. And then my parents would pick me up at 4.30 at the big tree. And that is like, I mean, literally I was raised by my coaches, by the mountain, by the people there, by the culture there. Um, so I feel really, that was like, yeah, an incredible privilege to so have So every up. day from 12 to 4.30, you went skiing. Yeah. And then the weekends were just all time. <laughs> And, you know, a funny thing also, my dad used to write these notes to my school teachers on powder days that said, today, my daughter and I are going to study gravity and inertia. And then like, we'd go skiing on powder days. (laughs) Your family just sounds great. And do you ski with them today? I do. I ski with them quite often. And it's uh, one of my favorite parts about still living close to them. That's awesome. And your brother passed away when you were young or before Um, you were born? Before I was born. Yeah. His name was Michael and I'm named after him. Wow, that's so cool. I have a brother that died before I was born mm. as well. And was he young when he, he passed was, away? I want to say two or three. Yeah, he was two years old, I think. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. He's my guardian, though I feel his presence for sure. Oh, that's so cool. That's so interesting. I haven't met a lot of people who've also experienced that. So thanks for sharing that. It's an interesting thing to not know your brother, but to feel his presence like really heavily in your family. So you started as a ski racer, moved to free skiing. How did you make that switch? Yeah, I think that for me, skiing became something that I was so deeply in love with. It was like my biggest passion in life. And I really didn't want to take away from that. So the competing aspect of it you know, was centered around competing against other people. And when I went out and free skied with my friends, that was my passion. That was, I didn't ever want to take away from that. So I essentially made the decision, like when I'm filming, I'm competing against myself and no one else. We're all a team. And that was what drew me more to free riding and, and free skiing. And ultimately I started my free riding in slope style and half pipe, and then still felt that pull to ski powder and be out in the mountains with my friends and was able to navigate the industry at the time, which there was very few women um, participating and then eventually, you know, broke into the free ski world. Yeah, but there's probably no better place to have broken into free skiing than Tahoe. Like that's such a epicenter for so many amazing skiers. Who was influencing you living there and how did Tahoe influence your decision to kind of break into free skiing? Absolutely. It was a part of what I saw every single day. When I was on the mountain, there was world-class skiers and some of the best in the world, like Shane McConkie was a huge influence for his personality, his humor, his uh, his skiing as well. And then there was like JT Holmes, Ingrid Backstrom. It was such a part of our resort and our community that it seemed like a path that was maybe possible, but 
to be totally honest, when I was 15 and got my first sponsors, I didn't think that as a female, it was a possibility. There was such few females being represented by these brands and pushed out into media. So I kind of, you know, I, I remember telling my dad, like, I'm going to take a year off of school. And at this point, I already competed in X Games and the US Open and all of that. And then one year became two years. And then after two years, it was a full-fledged career. And I was like, dad, I think this is my calling. Like, I don't know if I'm going to go to school. And I always laugh because my parents never second guessed me. They never questioned it. They never said like, are you sure? Or anything like that. They were like, okay, cool. Yeah, do your thing. And that to me was ultimately the biggest support they could have shown me. So the first time you put on a pair of free skis, how did you know? Or did you, was it like landing a trick? How did you know you're like, I am never going back to downhill racing. I'm going to do these amazing tricks on free skis. And I'm sorry, I'm totally not a skier. So no, I'm sure I'm butchering all of this. <laughs> Um, I actually, ironically, I remember because I was a racer and racing is like quite expensive. Like my parents dedicated a lot to, you know, get me to these races and to, and to support me in this sport that was ultimately like, I know it was kind of like above our pay grade, like it was expensive. And I started getting sponsors for racing and that was going really well. And then I just felt that desire not to be um, under the regiment of having to train every day and and go around gates. And I wanted to just have more freedom when I was in the mountains because that is what brought me the most joy. And my friend gave me a pair of twin tips. They were lined twin tips. And he twin was tips. like... I was right. That's how yeah, you say it. Okay. Totally. And um, so that was kind of my introduction into using skis as like having a different tool under my foot, essentially. And that was ultimately, it just felt really free. So really quickly, I'm a little confused. It sounds like you're doing mountaineering. Yeah. Like I thought you were just taking snowmobiles up to the backcountry and skiing down. Yeah, or... That's what most people think because that's the easiest way to film a ski movie. But uh, basically whenever I'm not filming, like my most, the, what I'm most passionate about, my, my means of accessing terrain is hiking it. And so I, I, like our typical day in Jackson does consist of some element of ski mountaineering when you put sharp stuff on your feet and you have ice axes and crampons and you're in the rocks and you're in these big mountains that's like full on ski mountaineering for sure and rappelling in the middle of the line or whatever it may be. That's my, that's what draws me to the mountains the most. But when we're filming, yeah, the most easy way to film is via a helicopter or a snowmobile, which is great, but they're really efficient vehicles to get in the mountains, but it's not really, there's a different experience when you're hiking up that mountain. Mm, and it's just slower, which I imagine just there's some amazingness in the slowness of it. Yeah, totally. Coming down to like your interaction with nature and then being also so much more in tune with the snowpack and um, what the snowpack's doing as you gain elevation and different aspects. And I think that slowness is ultimately more safe, but it can also mean more exposure to bigger terrain because you're below stuff and above stuff. And yeah, so, you know, ski mountaineering is like it takes a different skill set than going out on a snowmobile or getting in a helicopter. There's a lot more to it. It's a, it takes a lot of experience to get to that space. Can you take listeners through an experience of what it's like to drop in at the top of a mountain in Alaska? So take yeah. me from looking at a map to getting that radio call three, two, one, and then you're, you're the first one to actually ski the line. So you don't, you're not following someone else's tracks to see if like an avalanche happened and yeah, <laughs> they survive. There's actually so much that goes into it. So a lot of the places that I have continued to go back to like Haines, Alaska, this is where that line was skied. I've gone there since I was 20 years old. So I know the mountain range relatively well. And you start 
dropping GPS pins on the lines that you like to ski and and then also looking at maps, whether that's Google Earth or like FatMap, this app that's really convenient for traveling in the mountains. But basically, yeah, there's a lot of studying that goes into it before we even get to the location. I look into the snowpack two weeks before I arrive and start to study that so that I can have some anticipation of if it's going to be stable or not. Um, and then we get there and then there's the mindset of like, okay, we're in Alaska now. We're skiing the biggest lines you'll ski in your entire season. It's on, it's game time. So there's a lot of focus. And then we get into the mountains. We fly out there in a helicopter, say, we'll generally go scope to the zone that we want to do. And we'll land at the bottom, take a photo of the line, study the line, talk about how you're going to ski it. There's a lot of intricacies in how you ski big mountain lines. For example, when it's really steep, you have what's called slough. So all the snow that's coming off your skis every single turn, you can't really, you can't get smoked by your slough. So you can't turn back into it. So you ski these lines left to right or at a diagonal. And then you have to understand where that snow is going to fall. So you're always staying on top of the ridge, like on the spine. And then you always have a plan B. So you're discussing all this stuff. You're taking photos. You're like, okay, I know exactly where every single turn is going to be when I ski this face. And then I have a plan B. So if something did happen, what's my exit strategy to get to a safe location? And then you get in the helicopter again, your heart rate goes up, you fly to the top of the mountain. Oftentimes we scope the line really close in the heli too. Like the heli will hover right above your line. So you can kind of get a better judgment of how big the cliff might be, how big the face is. You get to the top, you hope that you have an understanding of how big the cliff is, (laughs) which I've totally gone wrong. But anyways, you land at the top and oftentimes there's not a really good spot for the helicopter to land. Like they have to keep the power on. So they're hovering and it's this like, you know, it's pretty serious business. You don't want to mess the heli pilot up. You're a team, you're communicating. When he's comfortable, you can get out, but there's blades spinning on top of you and you might be on like a knife edge ridge. You're all alone. You have to pull your skis out. And it's like this balancing act. It's scary. You're watching, like your life is in the heli pilot's hands at that point. Um, and then heli pilot's really good. So he lands you perfectly and you get out and you're like, whew, okay, that was one adrenaline rush. And now I have to like figure out how to put my skis on, on this knife edge ridge or whatever it is, which is a complicated task as well. And so you're out and you are all alone. There's no one else around. Your camera crew's set up. You have a radio to communicate with them. And you have to trust in your experience for the last 15 years of your life and spending all this time in Alaska that you know exactly what you're about to do and you're confident in yourself. And I generally look at my photo again. And remember that when you take a photo from the bottom of the line, it looks so different than when you're on top. It's totally different perspective. So when you're on top, it's like really blind rollover. You can't actually see your run. That's like very typical of Alaska. So that's where the memory comes in handy. And having a picture memory would be amazing. But basically, I'm just like, I know every single turn. I know that I'll see a little rock pepper on that face. And when I see that, that means I make a left-hand turn. Then the spine's going to drop in and I make like three more turns and I cross over to the other side of the spine, pushed on my left to the right. Now I'm on the left-hand spine. And, and you just have to remember every single step of the way. And you can't stop. You're filming. Skiing lines with speed is way safer than like dilly-dallying around because you're committed. You're going to beat your slough. You're out of there. And then, yeah, hopefully you hit that exit air or whatever it may be. And you come out mocked in and just like fired up. But there is a lot that goes into it rather than what we just show in the ski video for sure. Before Michelle does a big ski drop, she studies the snowpack, the landscape, and the weather patterns. Over a decade of preparing for trips has made her an expert, and these days other athletes seek out Michelle's guidance in big mountain terrain. 
She's often the only woman on these outings. The other athletes, the camera people, even the helicopter pilot are usually men. Michelle is showing women around the world they can ski some of the steepest, craziest lines. In a lot of ski films I've seen in the past, there just hasn't been a lot of women. Did you have any female role models in the sport growing up? Yeah, I think at that early stage, when I started skiing in the park, which was when I was 15, 14, it was really Christy Leskinen and Sarah Burke were like the two poster child um, women that were getting a lot of play for park skiing at the time. So there weren't a lot of girls to train with. So what did you do? Did you just, you just trained with guys? Yeah, I skied with the guys. And I think from a pretty young age, like I was teased a lot growing up. And I ultimately, I remember there being this moment of like, my guy friends don't tease me, but all my girlfriends tease me. And I was like, you know, I'd come home in tears like, oh man. So I ended up cutting my hair like really short and people called me Mac. And my dad coached almost every sports team I was on, including baseball. And like, I just played on the guys' teams and they called me Mac so that the other team didn't know that I was a girl. And we totally kicked butt. And I think for me at an early age, that set this like standard that like I was no different than the guys when it came to athletic ability. And I truly believed that. But I think I also had this small part of me that was probably like, I have to prove my worth on this team as a female so that that made me push myself ultimately and and prove myself. And I still have that, which is something that is just, it must be ingrained in me from my childhood, which is an interesting thing because I don't think I should have to prove myself to anyone. But because that was such a big and important uh, part of my upbringing, having those strong female role models that were strong and athletically driven and had like a beautiful voice to back that up and that were gracious leaders um, and ultimately pioneers in women's sports. That was powerful for me. So I think that has been a part of my, I don't know, I guess my like purpose in my career is to be a strong female role model for the younger generation. Well, one of the best ways to see females on the mountain absolutely ripping are movies. And I think some of your parts in some of the biggest movies ever They've been really transformative for the sport. I was watching one of your movie parts yesterday. It looks terrifying. There's so much that could go wrong. So what goes through your head at the top of the mountain when you're about to drop in? Yeah, this is something that I think uh, as a professional adventure athlete, if you will, I have dealt with my entire life and I've kind of like fine tuned it to figure out what works for me. And a lot of that comes with experience in those situations. And it, it takes a lot of mind control and focus and visualization and a lot of practice and work to get to that position. And so I don't know, like a couple years ago, I was in Alaska and I dropped in on two of the best lines of my ski career, I would say. And and in that moment, my mind and body were aligned and I had full confidence in what I was doing. And I honestly didn't have a strong sense of fear. Um, I was totally present and I was totally aware of my surroundings and I had studied the line. And once I was up there, I was like, it's go time. Like fear is a really interesting thing. I think there's a legitimate fear like a fear of the snowpack not being um, super stable. That's a legitimate fear. And that's something that you have to manage with logic and your understanding of the snowpack. And then there's this other fear that I think is something that is just inside all of us that comes up and you have to suppress that or recognize how to distinguish like which one's a logical fear and which one is like something you're creating in your own head. And I think having control over that and being able to separate that is a skill set that 
you learn when you're in the mountains because ultimately one wrong decision can cost you your life. But it's really important. Like I will not drop in if I'm not a hundred percent confident in my ability to ski top down and, you know, safely I have exit plans. I have uh, so much strategy that goes into it and so much practice that I'm a hundred percent confident. And then there's this really simple question too, that I'll ask myself to put myself in check. And that is, am I doing this for myself or am I doing this for someone else? And if I'm doing it for someone else, then I pull out because that's not, that's not going to work out, right? I have to be present. I have to be doing it for myself, not for the camera guy, not for the film part, not for the Instagram post. Like I have to be doing that for myself. That's got to be hard. There's a <laughs> lot of things I've done for the gram or the shot or to <laughs> yeah. prove myself or like to be able to compete with the guys. How do you, do you just keep asking yourself that question over and over until you get the right answer? Yeah. I mean, to take into consideration that I've been doing this professionally since I was 15. So like there is definitely like, I always say when I'm in the mountains and I'm filming or taking photos, that's a red flag. We talk about red flags when we talk about entering to the mountains and, and how can you recognize avalanche problems? Red flags would be like rapid warming or a ton of snowfall or shooting cracks or recent avalanches. Red flag for me is also a human factor of like, am I filming? That's a red flag because as much as I can say that, yeah, it's super easy for me to answer that question if I'm doing it for myself or not, there's Kodak courage involved. I've never heard the term Kodak courage, but I like that. Yeah, yeah. And that's something that it is hard to answer that question sometimes, but it's, you know, hearing the drop in like, okay, Michelle's dropping in 10 seconds. When you hear three, two, one, I am going and there's nothing stopping me. And I'm like going to lace my line or go to plan B, but I am like, it's on. And my mind is so present in that moment and confident. If you've ever seen a video of Michelle flying down a mountain, you can sense her confidence. She glides down nearly vertical slopes, catching air, landing softly, and it's seriously beautiful. When we come back, hear Michelle talk about how she came back from a severe injury early in her career and how that experience helped build her signature style. How does the saying go? April showers bring May flowers? While I love the benefits of rain, I definitely don't like being caught out in it. Luckily, we have brands like Arcteryx who make gear that we know stands up to the biggest downpour. My go-to is the Beta LT jacket. I love the minimal design that makes it extra lightweight while still keeping me nice and dry. This is the jacket you wear for any adventure, from hiking to running errands to biking. The hood is even helmet compatible. They think of everything. And you know it'll stand up to the test of time and rain as it's made with BlueSign approved Gore-Tex. You can get the Beta LT jacket exclusively at REI.com or head to our show notes for the link. In a huge step for her career, Michelle landed a big deal with the ski production company Matchstick Productions. But things took a scary turn on her first filming trip. She hit a rock and severely injured her knee. To make matters worse, her sponsors pulled out because it was unclear how long her recovery would take. But Michelle came back even stronger. In the following year, she won Best Female Performance of the Year at the Powder Video Awards, which is a pretty big deal in the ski world. So back in 2009, you were filming and you had a pretty terrible fall. I read you had like five knee surgeries. Yeah, I'm on number five. (laughs) Talk to me about this and how did you recover? 
Yeah, the first injury I had was just ACL, which uh, in retrospect was a really easy injury for me to wrap my head around and get through. Um, the second injury I had, I landed on a rock and that was ACL, meniscus, medial patellofemoral, microfracture, cartilage damage, like the whole gamut. That happened while you were filming, right? Yep, with Matchstick. I landed on a rock and uh, that injury took me out for a year and a half, almost two years. I lost all my sponsors. I was like, oh, I'm gonna have to sell my house. Like I couldn't pay my taxes, like the whole nine yards. I was like, I'm gonna have to start over. But um, I kind of just attacked that injury head on and maintained this positive outlook the entire time. Like I was young. I was like, I've got my whole life ahead of me. If I can ski again, first first and foremost, I'm really happy. There was doubts from my doctor that I wouldn't be able to ski again. And so I was like full tears when I got back on my skis. So grateful that my body healed and I was able to be there again. And um, having it all taken away from you, losing everything, your sponsors and, and all of that kind of puts things into perspective. And I think I sat on that for a while and decided that this was ultimately something that brought me so much joy and that I loved so much that I was going to go for it again. Like I'm going to start new, clean slate, let's go. And I was able to carry that positivity through that injury and come back. And I also came back with like so much more love and appreciation for this sport, for the community, for the people I get to do it with, for the mountains, for the areas that I get to visit. And I feel really lucky that I have something to be so passionate about. Any advice for people who are going through an injury or just can't do their sport right now because of COVID? Yeah, totally. It feels really vulnerable at times because what you define yourself as for myself, I'm a professional skier, gets, you know, the rug gets taken out from under you and you're kind of have to face some, some, maybe even some personal demons about who you really are or what can entertain you during that time. And for me, it's been important. Every injury I've had, I've like totally dove into a different project, whether that was like for the first one, I went back to school and I started taking classes just for the sake of taking classes. The second injury, I learned the ukulele and that has been something that has carried me through tough times. The ukulele is like such a high pitch, energetic sound to it. I'm like, you can't possibly play a sad song. So that was the perfect <laughs> instrument to like bring me through. And then the next injury I had, I remodeled my house, which was questionable at best. Right. I was like on a ladder, like painting really high. And yeah, I'm pretty high energy. So I just need to occupy my time through injuries and know that there's a brighter future ahead. And if you dedicate your time and energy to healing and you listen to your body and you stay in a positive mindset, which is, you know, there's so much to be said about how you get to that place, but therapy is a great way to go. And and, and you push through. Well, kudos to you for making it through. And, and I appreciate that you recommend therapy because so many people, you know, when I was growing up, therapy was looked on as really weak. And mm -hmm. now it's like, it's the bravest thing you can do. Totally. Even like, you know, so I guess it was two and a half, three years ago, I found myself in like my first ever stage of depression. I had overloaded my plate saying yes too much. And I was really in a low place. I needed to say no to a lot of things and give myself some time and space to heal mentally. And that's when I got a therapist. And now I feel like I'm in a really happy place. I don't have any depression or like I don't know. I feel like I'm in a good headspace, but I still go to therapy because for me, it keeps me there. It's like fine tuning everything, figuring out what works. And ultimately, I think that therapy is, I would recommend it to everyone. Like it's amazing to be able to get shit off your chest. Let's be real. <laughs> How much a day do you spend skiing versus like cross training or mental training? 
Yeah. Um, well, I think it depends on the time of the year. So right now I'm here in Jackson Hole because I'm totally obsessed with the national park and these mountains are really, really big and it's a place where you can get out and ski mountaineer. And, it's and so have, vertical there. <laughs> yeah, totally. Basically my schedule right now is like two days on, one day off, two days on, one day off. So on those two days on, I'm waking up at five in the morning. I'm out the door at six. I'm in the mountains at 6.30 and we don't come down till like 4.30, like when the when it's getting really late because we're going for really big days. You're typically here hiking like more than 6,000 vertical feet a day. So for me, like I prep in Tahoe, I do as many laps as I can there hiking. And then I come out here and I'm like, okay, now I'm going to get my butt kicked. And uh, it also tests my ability. These mountains are so big that I can fine tune my big mountain skills. And yeah, for me, this place just opens up a lot of potential. It seems like Hawaii for big wave surfers. Yeah, totally. And then on my down days, like today... I went and got some body work done because my body gets pretty wrecked <laughs> um, doing what I do and that's important to maintain. And then I, I do meditate quite often these days and I'll talk to my therapist twice a month. And um, other than that, it is so much about visualization and you know mental preparation for a day, like having all my gear in order and, and knowing where I'm going to go and, and wrapping my head around that like, yeah, confidence thing and, and, you know what? It's interesting. And I will bring this up because as a female, I think it's really important. It's not talked about that much, but women go through such a different cycle than men. And so fine tuning that for me over the past couple of years, my therapist introduced me to some pretty cool tools to understand at which time of the month I'm athletically performing my highest and at which time of the month I maybe should chill out a little bit more. And so keeping track of that and honoring that is really helpful. That's awesome. I just started reading about that too. And I had no idea that there's certain times of the month when I'm running that I'm just naturally more dehydrated. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. I started playing around with that and now I can tell like it has to do with your cycle. It's really nice to answer that question. There's like these superpowers that we can change the way that we perceive the way our bodies work because we are super women. We have a lot of things that happen because of nature that are beautiful and that can ultimately aid us in being better people. Michelle definitely has superpowers. Not just because she's a badass woman skiing down huge slopes in the backcountry, she's also using her platform as a professional athlete to talk about climate change. It's something she's experienced the effects of firsthand over the course of her career in the mountains. I watched a video you recently did with Arcteryx where you talked about experiencing the recent California wildfires in Tahoe. In the video, you talk about how you made a commitment to climate change advocacy and activism. So what are the changes you're seeing as a mountain athlete? And tell me a little bit about what you're doing about it. You know, Tahoe has become kind of an epicenter of climate change and it breaks my heart. Right now is a perfect example. We didn't have snow from December, I think, until yesterday there. It was like kind of a drought. We lost a lot of snowpack. It was 50 degrees in the middle of the winter. And then now we're having this like 100 inch storm that's coming in that's hitting the Sierras. And I'm like, holy moly, like those extreme weather patterns are becoming more regular. And I've been noticing them for the last five years, especially living in Tahoe. We had three years, three or four years of complete drought. And like, man, the town morale was down. Like, I was like, oh, do I have to move? Like, is it going to snow here again? And 
They're predicting by 2100 that snow will not be in the mountains of Tahoe below 9,000 feet. So our snow lines are getting heavier. That's changing the watershed and that's changing ultimately life on Earth. And that's also opening up our forest to forest fires, which we experienced heavily this summer. Like you couldn't go outside, you couldn't breathe. It was like really difficult to live amongst that smoke. And I think, you know, the smoke from the California wildfires ultimately traveled to New York. And so I think in one aspect, it woke a lot of people up to climate change and that it is happening right now. So being so in tune with nature, because I'm, you know, digging snow pits out there, assessing the snowpack, looking at the weather constantly, um, determining whether something is safe to ski or not because of ultimately nature and the snowpack, you're, you're in tune with it and you see that kind of stuff. And when you notice it firsthand, like I'm not a scientist and I'll never claim to have all that knowledge, but you got to stand up and fight for it. And so that's what motivated me ultimately to get involved with Protect Our Winners, which is a wonderful organization that, you know, oh, I think sweet. it was with Jeremy Jones. Yeah, totally. And Jer has been a close friend and someone who I look up to for his athletic pursuits, but also just who he is as a human. Yeah. Protect Our Winners, I think, started out with like, you know, back in the day of like, don't use plastic bags and 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 that kind of stuff. And now they've fine tuned their message and they've grown so much as a community and an organization. They know that ultimately it comes down to making policy change and talking to these policymakers. And so it's it's become political and not that I love politics, but it is something that I am far more in tuned with now than ever before. I've been to DC and lobbied on behalf of Protect Our Winners and told personal stories about what I'm seeing in the mountains. And those personal stories are really powerful for congressmen and women and senators. And, and you have that personal connection with them. They're human. They're people too. They'll listen to you. And then furthermore, attending town council meetings in Tahoe and speaking up on behalf of our community and advocating for certain representatives and and that's become a bigger part of my uh, mission as well, I guess, because you, you can't go out there and play in these mountains and, and not protect them too. I believe in that. Any advice to people who want to do more for climate change? Like what can other people do? What do you recommend? Yeah, yeah. I think that using your voice can be scary, but ultimately very gratifying. Um, I like to do stuff that has a ripple effect and protect our winners has had a huge ripple effect on their athlete ambassador team for myself right now. Like, for example, we have a Republican who is a staunch climate denier in office for my district, which includes Yosemite. And so the ripple effect of protect our winners is now I know how to get involved politically. And you know what? It comes down to politics. It totally does. We need to change policy on a massive level to change climate change. And so get your hands dirty, go to protectourwinners.org. There's a roadmap of how you can get involved, how you can volunteer, how you can use your voice, how you can get more people involved. That organization is uh, very well studied now and how to do it in an appropriate way. And they're talking to climate scientists. They're teaching us how to use our voice in a way that will have that ripple effect that will create a positive change. So I would say that's a great place to start. And then get involved with local organizations that are in your community. POW has a ton of chapters all over the country that you, and all over the world now, which is really, really cool. But um, ultimately, I think it's about using your voice and standing up for what you believe in, which is intimidating. And for me, I've gotten a lot of hate for it. And a lot of people have called me a hypocrite and all of that kind of stuff. But you have to have a thick skin and, and know that what you're doing is uh, for the betterment of humans and for our planet. And I think that there's no stronger thing to, you know, to stand up for than that. 
without our world, without like the climate being stable, we'll have nothing. We won't have an economy. We won't have our sports that we love. We won't have all of that stuff. And we're all fighting for clean air and drinking water at the end of the day for every citizen on this planet. And that is something that should be a right to everyone. You're a really big role model. Any any advice on getting started or breaking into the industry that, you know, for some people is still a little intimidating? Yeah, totally. I think one of the unique things about my profession is that there's no like roadmap of how you get from A to B. You kind of create that path on your own. And every athlete that I talk to has a different story about how they became a professional athlete. And that's really interesting. So there's not like a formula. It's not like you do X, Y, and Z and you get this. Um, You kind of have to forge your own way, which is like a part of this job that I really love. Like the world is my oyster. I can literally be a producer one day. I can be a photographer the next day. I can be a writer. I can... um, you know, do I can go down the mental health path. Like there's so, I can do whatever I want to do, which is cool. So I think thinking of a creative way of how you approach these sports, if you want to get into it, is, uh, is a really cool way to go about it. Like there's a bunch of professional athletes now that just have like a strong message or a strong brand within themselves that, um, you know, our, our jobs too have gotten so convoluted with what we do. Like I don't just go ski now. Like I do a lot of stuff. I host events. I am a producer. I'm you do a podcasts for yeah. me. <laughs> you create your own content. Like there's so much to it. So I think that if you're really passionate about it and you keep doing what you do for fun and for the love of the sport, that good things will come to you. Michelle's passion, not only for free skiing, but for optimizing her performance and using her platform for good, it all makes her a role model. She never lets the film crew, the expectations of fans, or the pressure to set an example get in the way of her drive. She does it for a pure love of the sport. Michelle, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really love talking to you. If you want to follow Michelle's amazing adventures, you can follow her on Instagram at MyShellParker. That's M-Y-S-H-E-L-L-P-A-R-K-E-R. And head on over to RedBull.com to watch Michelle's series Originate, which I highly recommend. And of course, go to ProtectOurWinters.org to join the fight against climate change with Michelle. Wild Ideas Worth Living is part of the REI Podcast Network. It's hosted and created by me, Shelby Stanger, written and edited by Annie Fassler, and produced by Chelsea Davis. Our executive producers are Paolo Motola and Joe Crosby, and our presenting sponsor this season is Ford. As always, we appreciate when you subscribe to the show, when you rate and review it, wherever you listen. I read every single review, and they mean a ton to me. Remember, some of the best adventures often happen when you follow your wildest ideas. <laughs>